All right, so let's go ahead and uh, get back to it. So you'll notice for uh, Paul, as you're trying to like follow the argument of the text, you look at the beginning of verse 16, you've got four, uh, which in Greek is what word? You know that word yet? What Greek word is behind the word for or because? Gar, okay. So you see like 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. 16, for, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in the middle of 16, for is the power of God. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 19, for what can be known about God. 20, for his invisible attributes. 21, for although they knew God. You see that? He likes Gar a lot. So he has pretty sustained, careful arguments going on in the text. So I want you to look at the, read from verses 17 to 18. Okay, just look at the text. You can look up here on your, in your Bible. That four at the beginning of verse 18. How do you explain the progression from 1, 16, and 17? This is all really good to verse 18. Four the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, so that makes sense. So just think about it. All really good stuff in 16 to 17. Then the word for at the beginning of verse 18. And, it, and then it starts talking about the wrath of God and, and what we often talk about is like really bad news. Okay, so what is going on? How do you explain the progression between the two? Okay, what's our thoughts? Yeah. Okay, so very good. So you start to think of the questions that are being answered. You know, like, why do I need the righteousness of God? Or why do I need this good news for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven? Okay? That's, that's pretty good. Any other thoughts? Yep. Good, yeah, yeah, he uses revealed in both texts as well. That's the, one. <coughs> yep, the wrath of God being revealed is what makes it it's so necessary that the righteousness of God be revealed and be accessible for us. Yep. Yep, it's one of yeah, it's one of the dimensions of God's righteousness. His commitment to uphold His glory is shown in His pouring out of wrath. Okay. So you have these different things, but but especially the connection is about need. I think. I mean, I think that's the most obvious connection between it. There's all this stuff about really good news, but then you know the question of why do I need that? Why can I only get that by faith? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And righteousness of people. All right. <coughs> We're going to talk a lot about the wrath of God here. So I want to think, just even before we look at the text, about the wrath of God. Do we tend to shy away from the topic of the wrath of God? Do you think that's common in the church today? To maybe 
not want to talk about the wrath of God. It depends maybe on your context, uh, that w you know, where you live. Like, like <coughs> it's a lot easier to talk about the mercy of God than it is to talk about the wrath of God. I think we would agree about that. But think about Paul in his most significant letter. He's about to spend about 60 verses in a row on this topic. It's a lot of text. I mean, he is going to be talking about the wrath of God from now until chapter 3, verse 20. That's a long, long section. Okay, so he devotes a ton of time to the topic. You can also think about Jesus. Contrary to popular portrayals of Jesus, he spent a lot of time talking about judgment. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about hell, about people being banished from him, about people being thrown into the blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, who loved us more than anybody else, never shied away from talking about the wrath of God. I was also reading uh, from one of the most famous sermons ever preached in America, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know how familiar you are with that sermon by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. But just, it's helpful for me sometimes just to think and hear what people were preaching, how people were preaching about these kind of topics. So this is just a, a short excerpt from his sermon. But he says, the reason why the ungodly are not fallen already and do not fall now to judgment is only that God's appointed time hasn't come yet. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There is no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor, any, nor can anyone deliver out of God's hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, he can most easily do it. And they deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. On the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment. You know, this is this an excerpt of what he shared in that, in that sermon. It's hard maybe even to read words like that because they can sound extreme perhaps, but are they really any sharper than what we found in Psalm 7 or in Romans 1 or in Revelation 6 or other places? But in our own day, at least in America, and I'm not sure how it is here, we tend to shy away from talking about the wrath of God. Uh, so, so I think in my own culture, th this is, it is very common to shy away from talking about God's wrath. Perhaps that's out of fear of being viewed as a bunch of crazy people. Or perhaps, uh, like we've heard preaching, that seems simply designed to scare people. <coughs> as if you can scare people out of hell and into heaven. So that people sometimes respond by simply never talking about God's anger at all. See, like, it's easy sometimes you, you, if you grew up, like, hearing a kind of thing, whether it's about, I don't know, what, I mean, it could be about a variety of things, but just in this case, I grew up hearing a lot of preaching that was real, like, it seemed designed to scare people. And so then sometimes the response of people is then to never talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God, the punishment of hell. Uh, perhaps, or perhaps, uh, we like to think of God in a certain way or in a certain light 
and thinking of God as burning with indignation every day against sinners just isn't what we like to think about God. But at the end of the day, I think as preachers or even as just believers, do we want to present God as he is or as we would wish him to be? Do we want to know God as he is or as we would hope he would be? And I hope you say with me, I, I want to know God as he is. <clears throat> I want to know him as he is and I want to present him as he is to other people. I think you see Jeremiah's heart in this when he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man in his might, the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. We want to know God as he is. And he is what he says he is in his word. And God is love and God is also a righteous judge who feels indignation against sinners every day. So I want to, I want to keep pushing on this idea of the wrath of God. Is the wrath of God good? I'm not saying is it good news necessarily, but is the wrath of God good? It is. The wrath of God is not bad. It is not evil. The wrath of God is good. Now, of course, we all realize there is such a thing as sinful wrath or sinful anger. <clears throat> We've all been guilty of that at different times, I'm sure, in our lives of getting really angry over stuff that didn't matter, of flying off the handle, maybe of, of, of uh, getting really upset when things didn't go our way, maybe even lashing out at people, family members with angry words or at somebody who really didn't do anything wrong or at least didn't even intend to hurt us. And perhaps it goes without saying, but that sort of irrational anger that is unbridled and unhinged and undeserved is absolutely not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the wrath of God. God is incredibly patient. He is very slow to anger. Yet God's anger does burn hot against sin. And one day his anger will fall. And so we might wrestle with whether the wrath of God is actually a good thing. I mean, wouldn't it be better for God just to be loving and never be angry at all? Wouldn't that be better? Well, it's easy to say that, but what kind of love is it to not hate evil? I mean, think about it. Is that really what we would want? To have a God who does not care about evil? To have a God who can watch injustice and greed and abuse and not be moved at all? Even though we're pretty messed up ourselves, think about what happens in our hearts when we hear of horrible evils and atrocities. What happens to us? <clears throat> uh, back where I'm, I'm from, there's like the biggest mall in America. It's called the Mall of America. <clears throat> about, about two years ago, three years ago, uh, a man walked into that mall, which I go to regularly with my kids, grabbed a five-year-old boy at random and threw him over the wall, like over this guardrail. He's up on the third floor. Little, little kid, didn't even know him. Walked in there, grabbed him, and threw him over the railing. How do you feel about that? And I remember hearing about that. It was my hometown. I go there regularly with my little kids. Same age. You know, I, you, you could think of, I, I'm sure there's there's things that are really important in your, your history or in your family, terrible things that have happened in your country or, uh, or to people you love. 
when you, when you think about those things, what does it stir within you? Uh, in, the, in, the, in the US and Washington DC, there is a place called the Holocaust Museum. Uh, I remember going there as a young man. And, and basically it's, it's maybe apart from maybe being in Germany or something like, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most detailed explanations of what happened during the Holocaust. You walk out of that, I mean, everybody walks out, they might walk in there kind of enjoying everything, you know, in DC, and then you walk out of that, and how do you think people feel? What would you think about a person who felt nothing? And these are just a few examples of things we've actually heard about. But the truth is, there are so many horrific evils happening every day in every part of the world. And what if we could see just for a day all the evil things happening in this country. Like, what if you were, what if you actually saw it for one day? All the injustices, all the greed, all the hatred, all the abuse, all the murders, all the theft, one day in your own country. What if you could actually see it? How would you feel? You, one, we would be overwhelmed. We could not handle it if we actually knew all that was happening. But if somehow we could see it all, what if we felt no anger? Do you know what I think we would question? I think we would start to question your love. Love that does not rise up in anger when the vulnerable or the attacked are, are attacked or abused. What kind of love is that? Is that really the kind of God we want? If sin, violence, hatred, wickedness does nothing to God, if he does not care about abuse or injustice or murder, if none of these things provokes God to anger, in the least, would we not question how much God really loves the world that he's made? I mean, my point is, God is not angry with the wicked because God is bad. God is angry with the wicked because God is good. The wrath of God may make us feel uncomfortable, and that is understandable, because we know we deserve it. But the wrath of God against the wicked is not wicked. It is completely righteous. God's anger is a result of his goodness, his holiness, and his love. And I, and I want to I want to put that for us as, before us as we spend a lot of today thinking about the wrath of God. That though it can make us feel uncomfortable, the wrath of God is not bad, it is good. God is not angry with the wicked because God is bad. God is angry with the wicked because God is good. Because he is loving. Now, when we look at the text then in Romans 1, 18 and following, I want to think, what is, what is like the basic sin of human beings? Okay, so you just follow the text, 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you've got like, God pours out his wrath on what? All unrighteousness and ungodliness. As you think about where Paul is going, by the end of the section, what are we going to find out? How many people are unrighteous and ungodly? All people. Okay. So he starts out by saying God pours out his wrath on all unrighteousness and ungodliness and the way the text ends is he says all people are unrighteous and ungodly okay, God pours out his wrath his anger he is revealing his wrath already against the unrighteous and the ungodly who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth trying to hold down the truth what truth are people trying to hold down in this text what is Paul pointing out you look at the next verse that's what it answers verse 19 yeah, for what can be known about God is plain to them. 
because God has shown it to them. How has God shown them? The truths, the basic truths about who he is. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. How? How long? Ever since the creation of the world. Where? In the things that God has made. So, Paul starts by saying God pours out his wrath on all ungodliness and unrighteousness, on all people who suppress this truth about God. What truth about God? What are the basic truths about God that people hold down and try to reject? That he exists and that he's really powerful, at least that much. That he's there, that there is a God who is there, <clears throat> that I ought to care about him, and that he must be really, really powerful. You, everybody can see that. It is being shown to them every day in the things that have been made, and this has been true ever since the creation of the world. And Paul's, the result of that is what? So that they are without excuse. This is, you know, God is pouring on his wrath on people, and he's right to do it because he has made himself known to some degree to all people in the things that he has made. The heavens are declaring the glory of God every day. People don't want to respond. They want to, instead, they want to hold the truth down, <coughs> deny the truth that is crying out to them. And verse 21 kind of summarizes this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And I, I think that is, for Paul, that is the basic sin of human beings. Like that is like the fundamental sin of humanity. And that's where everything begins. Although they knew God, they did not honor God. Or give thanks to him. Instead, they become futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Okay, so, so then this begins in the text, this kind of exchange language in the text. Okay, so notice in verse back in verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed. How is God's wrath revealed today? The wrath of God is already fallen. There is coming a day, and Paul's going to talk a lot about this day. There is coming a day when the righteous, the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, when it will be poured out in full. But, but the wrath of God is already fallen. How? What is God doing today that is already a manifestation of his wrath? He gives them over. This is that exchange stuff. Although they, they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Instead, they exchanged God and his glory for, for other things. And, there, and then you get to verse 24, and you see how the text goes. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. <clears throat> verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up handed them over. God's wrath is revealed already when God hands people over to themselves. When God gives people what they want. I think a good illustration of this from the Old Testament is from the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. There's a couple different stories like this, like where they're like, ah, we hate this. We don't have any good food. We don't like this manna, you know, give us meat. We want meat. Lots of meat. And God's like, all right, you want meat? I'll give you meat. 
I'll give you meat not just for a day or two days or five days or ten days. I'll give you meat for a whole month until it's coming out your nostrils. And then they eat it in their craving and it strikes them dead. But that's maybe not the best example. Best example, I think, <coughs> is they're on the brink of the promised land. This is in Numbers 14. And the spies come back. Ten spies come back with a bad report. Two spies come back with a good report. And the people follow the bad report. And what do they say? If only, you ever thought about what they said? They said, if only we could have died in the wilderness. And then what does God say? Because if you said that, I will give you that. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. And for 40 years, they die in the wilderness. Good illustration of this. When God gives people what they want, it is his wrath against them. I've modified a line from C.S. Lewis about this. The best thing you can say to God is thy will be done. But the worst thing you could hear from God is thy will be done. God's wrath is already falling. It is falling as God hands people over more and more to what they want, to their own evil desires. When God takes away his restraining hand and gives them over more and more to what they want, it is his wrath falling. And then he gives a couple illustrations of what that looks like in real life. Like, What does that look like? Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and then he gives a specific illustration of that. But as God gives people over to dishonorable passions, this is his wrath against them. And he highlights then one illustration. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. <coughs> now, <coughs> we'll, talk, uh, we'll talk some more about that in a minute, but I would just say, notice the focus on the natural order and the breakdown of the natural order. Okay, did you see, like three times in that text, Paul highlights that God gives people over so that they part, start doing stuff that is against nature. If you want to see like the revelation of the wrath of God today, it is in the breakdown of the natural order. God created and designed this world to work really well in a specific way. And as people reject God, God continues to hand them over. And how do you see it? You see it wherever you see the breakdown of the natural order. And this, and Paul highlights the breakdown of the, natu the natural order in terms of sex. God's design for men and women. The home. All of these things. You see the breakdown of that. That is the, the evidence of the wrath of God. And then verses 28 to 32, as you, read, as you read through that, I won't read through the whole thing, you see the breakdown of the entire society. Like you look through 28 to 32, and I mean, it's, it's hard. It's just this list of breakdown of relationships between people. People hate God. They hate each other. They don't, they don't obey their parents. You see the breakdown of an entire society. It ends up with people not just wanting to do evil, the whole society is trying to encourage other people to do evil. 
The way to get praise is to be more evil. When you see that, that is the sign of God's wrath. And, uh, that, and as you read through that, I mean, it just gets worse and worse. It's like this is all a downward spiral. The way that Romans 1, 18 to 32 goes is basically you have the fundamental sin of humanity. People fail to honor God and give him thanks. And that begins a downward spiral in the text. The breakdown of the natural order, breakdown of the home, breakdown of entire society. And, and, it, and I think it's interesting, sad, <coughs> that, that you would think that in given cultures, there would, there would be some point at which the culture would say this far and no further. You would think that, right? Like there'd be some point at which it would be like, it's not going to get any worse than that. And uh, a commentator, R. Kent Hughes, he said, that's not, never going to happen because there's always room for deprovement. I don't know if you've ever heard the line. There's always room for improvement. So he, he makes a play off that. He says, there's always room for deprovement. There's never going to be a point <coughs> at which a culture gets to it and says, ah, this far and no further. It just continues to spiral out of control towards evil. The whole passage is a long, sad, downward spiral leading to the point where even though we know these things, that these things deserve death and judgment, we not only do them, but we applaud and encourage others to do them too. When God gives us what we want, when he loosens his grip so we can go after what's in our hearts, where does it lead? It leads to what we read. You end up with a human race filled with every kind of unrighteousness. You end up not just with a breakdown of the home and of marriage and of sexuality, but eventually with a breakdown of the entire society. Or put it plainly, you end up with the world as we know it. There's a guy said a long time ago in a poem, uh, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. The wrath of God has already fallen. And we see its devastation every day. Now, I want to think about the sin of homosexuality for a bit. Okay. And, and let me just ask you, just, just briefly, like, uh, how prevalent is the sin of homosexuality in the society here in Ethiopia? Is this, is this like, uh, is this really, like, culturally, like, shunned and tabooed? Or is this, like, praised and celebrated? Taboo, okay. Very, very bad, okay. And that would have been the same way in the U.S. years ago. Today, this is celebrated. I mean, absolutely celebrated. Uh, like to a point, it would be hard if you, if you haven't lived in the U.S. Uh, or in in a certain parts of Europe to even understand. Like, like there are. When we talk about pride, if you th- say the word pride, Pride Month. In the, in the U.S., all, what that is is an entire month to celebrate deviant sexual activity, basically. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really bad. You, you cannot probably do anything worse in the United States than to speak out against this. Like, if you want to easily offend people and get slammed, say something on social media about, uh, you know, God is designed marriage for one man and one woman, or uh, homosexuality is wrong. I mean, if, if a person posted that, uh, like on whatever, Facebook or Twitter or whatever thing they, they used, they would, I mean, realistically, they, they could lose their job and have their lives <laughs> changed. I mean, it is like unbelievable what's happening. And 
in our country. So, so we're coming from different contexts in regard, in regard to this. But, so, but <laughs> cultures are always deproven, <laughs> okay? They're always, so like you never know uh, what's, what areas your culture's gonna have serious things. It, so in, in our culture, this really is a, is a common thing. Okay, so in terms of why does Paul focus on the sin of homosexuality, when I, when I try to work through this in our own, in our own culture, maybe this will help you with other issues in yours because you know issues within your own cultures that are like really praised, like sins that are really praised or sins that are really common, sins that are hard to speak out against. Okay, there's always going to be some, like, like I can talk about racism all day long and be praised <laughs> right now in our culture, like, because this is like really, really uh, hated by our culture and it should, and it's right, like we should, you know, r- r- racism is sinful and so, but, but I can speak against that sin and have everybody pat me on the back and you speak against another sin and it's like at great risk, <laughs> okay, and, and I'm sure you guys have your own, your own things that you're working through, okay. So when I'm trying to work through this, this particular issue in my own, my own context, I try to remind those who are believers but have struggled with homosexuality in the past. This is what we hope. We hope that people will, will come to Christ and, and be rescued out of homosexuality. But sometimes believers will continue to struggle with same-sex attraction or they'll struggle with their past about this. And so I want to always encourage people that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin not just from certain sins. Because in given cultures, there's going to be particular sins that are so bad that you feel this shame about them for the rest of your life. And so I remind you, remind our own people, that whatever sins we've engaged in the past, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. It doesn't matter what your past is. Jesus died to pay for all our sins. And then I want to encourage people, and I think you encourage your own people in the same ways with whatever sins this applies to, that if people are still struggling even a day with same-sex attraction, for example, uh, I encourage them that they can, by the grace of God, please God and walk faithfully in obedience by the Spirit's power, even if they have to fight against that temptation the rest of their lives. So there'd be people that, str- that we have lots, you know, various people in our church that were alcoholics for decades. And, and does that automatically go away, that struggle, when you become a believer? For some people, it does, and for others, it doesn't. I don't know how to explain that. Like some people, they, they never are drawn to that again. And others continue to fight that for the rest of their life. And it may be that you do have to continue to fight against that for the rest of your life. But by God's power, by the Spirit, with the Spirit's help, with, with the blessing and help of the, of the church, you can walk in obedience to God in spite of that struggle, in spite of that temptation, that bent. Because we don't all have the same. There, there are other people who do, but we don't all have the same struggles as, as one another. And so we need to hold this hope out to people in our churches, not look down on people for struggling with things that we think, ah, that's really bad. Like, because if you start getting a church environment like that, where you can't, where a brother or a sister can't share about struggles because they feel like everyone will, will shun me because I even struggle with that, then there's nowhere for them to go. If they can't be honest, if you can't be honest about your own struggles with any brother in your life, you're in a seriously dangerous place. The church has to be a place where we can be honest with one another about what we're really struggling with so that we can find the grace and the help that we need within the church. And, and I'll just, again, I'm just, because I think maybe it might be helpful for you to hear some of the things we struggle with in, in the U.S. on this because you'll be able to apply this in different ways. Like for years in the U.S., 
Like if a person in a church was struggling with, because maybe they had had homosexuality in the past or they were struggling currently with desires that they were trying to fight against, often what happened was they felt like they could never share that with anyone else in the church because they would be so shamed by that. No one, because it'd be so disgusting. They, would, they couldn't find any help. And this is a huge problem. If you can't find help in the church, where are you going to find help? The church has to be a place where we can go honestly with our struggles and where we can fight together to follow Jesus in spite of whatever struggles that we're going to face uh, in life. But the other topic I want to address is whether Paul is singling out homosexuality as some sort of unforgivable sin. And I'll say this clearly, that is not what Paul is doing in this text. Paul does see homosexuality as a sin that highlights the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our hearts, how far we've fallen from God's original design for us as a society. But, but Paul absolutely does not single homosexuality out as a kind of unforgivable, unpardonable sin. You know how often Paul talks about homosexuality in his letters? He only talks about it three times. Three times in his letters, and you should probably know all the texts. This one in Romans 1, of course, this is where he talks about it most. But do you know where else he talks about homosexuality? It's only three times. First Corinthians and... Uh, not in Galatians, not, not specifically, though it's often under the umbrella of sexual immorality, but one other place where he specifically highlights it, 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says that the law is not laid down for the, for the just, for the righteous, it's laid down for the lawless, and then he goes through basically the Ten Commandments, and he says the law is laid down for those who uh, dishonor God in these various ways, the law is laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers, the law is laid down for those who murder, the law is laid down for those who uh, commit sexual immorality and for those who, and those who practice homosexuality, the law is laid down for those who enslave, the law is laid down for this one. Okay? In that list, he says specifically the law is laid down to condemn and expose those who practice homosexuality. That's one text. The only other text is in 1 Corinthians 6, and it is worth, it is worth thinking about what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses... 9 through 11. So someone want to read it? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. There is no one beyond forgiveness. No sin greater than God's grace. There is grace, though, greater than all our sin. And you see that in the text. So even in the text like this, I think Paul is highlighting homosexuality because it is a sin that highlights the brokenness of humanity and the breakdown of the natural order. That is the thing Paul highlights about homosexuality. He keeps saying it's against nature. And he's showing you, like, when we do the most unnatural thing of exchanging God for other stuff, God hands us over to stuff that is horrible. And he hands us over to things that show that he's, everything's breaking down. And this sin highlights the brokenness of the world and uh, the breakdown of the natural order. But it is not a sin that is unforgivable. And in fact, the Corinthian church was made up of former homosexuals and former adulterers and former thieves and former greedy people. And, and he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And uh, this is an encouraging thing. 
I also think there's a warning to all of us in this text in Romans 1. Um, as you look down at the end. By the way, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. There, as you think about the text, Romans 1, Romans 2, Paul, Paul helps us think through what people know when we talk with them. Okay. You know when you're talking with someone that they know there's a God. They can see it. They may be trying to suppress that, but you can know that they know it or that they can at least observe it and see it. They may be refusing to acknowledge it. They may be trying to hold it down, hating that, but they can see it because God has made it plain to them. Okay, But look at this text. This adds something else. What else do they know? that they know that there are bad things and they know that those bad things deserve judgment. So how do they know that? Like that is God, the work of God in all of the people that he's made. God has put it within human beings to know that some things at least are wrong and not just that they're wrong, but that they deserve judgment. You know, the people you talk with know that. There is a God, and there is a, such a thing as evil, and doing that deserves judgment. But look at the bottom of the text here. Though they know that, they not only do the stuff anyway, they give approval to those who do it. They give applause to those who do it. They encourage them to go after evil. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know what entertainment looks like here necessarily, but I think at least American entertainment, which I imagine is pretty popular here, like the movies and various things, like what I find about entertainment, at least in America, is that the this is not everything, okay? But a lot of entertainment in America is basically watching and applauding people do stuff that God's gonna send them to hell for. <laughs> to put it pretty plainly, pretty bluntly, uh, a lot of American entertainment is we sit around and we watch people do stuff God's going to send them to hell for. And that is the bottom of the text here. Okay? Think of pornography. I don't know how prevalent pornography is here. It's everywhere in America and in, in Europe. <coughs> pornography is one of many examples that come to mind. But it can be extended to much more than that. But many, many Christian men, what do they do? They sit there and they watch people do stuff God's going to send them to hell for. And they take pleasure in it. And you can think of this with all kinds of other sins as well. But that is the bottom of this text. And we need to be very careful about this. Remember, there are real people, real people, doing real things that they're going to be judged for. And I do not ever want to give my applause to that or take joy in that a horrible thing to do. And that's the bottom of the text. And so I, I, I go through this text and I often think about that. Like I, and it, it, God has used that to really challenge me about what I take joy and pleasure in. And I want to take joy and pleasure, find entertainment and, and, and fun in things that are honorable, not things that are basically encouraging people to do stuff God's going to send them to hell for. Uh, so 
you can take that as you, <laughs> if you want. It's just a, a way that I, over the years, like God has really used that, that bottom of the barrel kind of thing in this text to, to challenge me. 